Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked all the way into, well, into Ghetto 8 of Purgatorio. We have seen the negligent rulers in their valley. We have seen one of them stand up and offer an evening prayer just as the last bells would sound for the liturgical day from churches across Europe in Dante's day. And now we move on to what happens, something that almost knocks the pilgrim off his feet that happens in the real world, not a vision, but <laughs> but this seems to be completely run-of-the-mill for everybody else in purgatory. Let's get to it. This is my English translation of lines 19 through 45 of Canto 8 of Purgatorio. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. Print it off, read along. You know I always say this. This is how it goes. Better yet, you could continue the conversation about this passage with me there by dropping a comment, and I'll respond back, and you can respond back to me, and we can carry on for as long as you'd like. Purgatorio, Canto 8, lines 19 through 45. Right here, reader, wet your eyes to the truth, because the scrim is so transparent that it's easy to pass inside it. I saw this courteous army all gaze upward in silence. They were expectant, but pale and humble too. And I saw, exiting from above and coming down to us, two angels with two flaming swords, the blades broken short and missing their tips. These angels were in robes that were as green as newborn leaves, which fluttered out and back as their green feathers beat over them. One of them came down to a spot a little above us, and the other came down onto the opposite embankment, so that the people were enclosed in the middle of them. I could clearly make out their blonde heads, but my eyes otherwise lost themselves in their faces, as any faculty is confounded by too much. The two of them came from Mary's bosom, Sordelo said. They keep watch over the valley because of the serpent that will soon enough make its way here. Just then I, who didn't know what path it might take, whipped around and drew even closer, all frozen in fear to those trusted shoulders. Sordelo went on, Let's go down now among the great shades and chat with them. They'll be really pleased to see you. The arrival of the second angels of Purgatorio. We want to talk endlessly about it. They're green. What in the world? You may have thought of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And in fact, I'd encourage you to think of that. A poem written about 100 years after comedy. But nonetheless, I'll tell you why I would encourage you to think about that in this greenness. We want to talk about what these angels are doing, what they stand for. We want to talk about the problem of Dante frozen in fear. This is a really important play, playing back to Inferno, and then finally we're going to end up with Sordello's really weird blasé. Well, let's just go down into the valley and talk to all the great kings down there. 
starting at the top, this is the first of seven direct addresses to the reader in Purgatorio. You should be used to this after Inferno. Seven direct addresses to the reader. Right here, the text says, reader. And again, I can't stress this enough. We stress this in Inferno, but I want to repeat it. Reader. The assumption here is that someone is reading this text, not hearing it performed, not as in a jongleur, a French teller of great romantic tales. No, the assumption here is that someone's reading this. So, right here at this spot, reader, wet your eyes to the truth. Now, remember we had a little bit of irony about eyes before and Dante's relying on his eyes as the day is darkening and not on his hearing, and that's going to come up in this passage. So there's a little bit of an undertow of irony here, but let's just leave it for the moment. Wet your eyes to the truth, because the scrim is so transparent that it's easy to pass inside. This is very reminiscent of the second address to the reader in Inferno, which occurs at Inferno 9, lines 61 through 63. And there, too, there's this idea of a veil of allegory that needs to be pierced. Why is this one here? Well, there are several things we could say. We could say that Dante may be feeling a little insecure. The allegory of the serpents and the angels, it's about to get very, oh, I hate to use this word, please forgive me, overdetermined. It's not quite as elegant as some other allegories have been in Inferno with Medusa and the demons on the gates of Dis. That's a little more elegant than this. There may be a way that Dante is a little insecure in the face of the first big allegorical moment in Purgatorio. Now listen, all of this is allegorical. The climb up, the steepness, the easiness to get into this tale. There's allegory all around us on every side and shot through the poem itself. But this is a point in which we seem to become intensely, formally, and uh, what do I want to say, aggressively allegorical with these angels and the coming serpent. Maybe Dante's feeling a little insecure, or does Dante want a closer bond with his reader? That could be a really nice way to see this. As we approach this very important allegory that will establish the end of the cantos before the main gate of purgatory, Dante wants to establish a more formal bond, a closer bond, a closer relationship, because, and this is what's really important, Dante is becoming more and more of a teacher as the poem goes forward. How can I put this to you? Dante the Pilgrim is Dante the Pilgrim. The Pilgrim is the Pilgrim throughout the poem. He's going to change. He's going to have experiences that change him. He's going to become a different figure by the time we get to Paradiso. But nonetheless, there's a kind of narrative development, and the Pilgrim is the Pilgrim. But the poet is changing behind us. And uh, to put it in modern lingo, the poet is becoming more of the professor, so as the poet becomes the prof, maybe the poet is trying to stabilize the poem a little bit as his role is changing underneath us and definitely becoming more of a professional philosopher prophet poet. <laughs> but more on that much ahead in Purgatorio. The passage goes on. I saw this courteous army all gaze upward in silence. I'm going to stop right here. It's this phrase, 
Esercito Gentile that has caused so much critical debate, this courteous army as I translated it. The question here is, which part of that phrase do you emphasize? (laughs) Is it the army part? So all of these rulers form an army force. If so, then you interpret the rest of the canto in a certain way. That is, they are the safeguards against evil, just like an army is a safeguard. The major problem here is that the army is not efficacious. It needs the angels. So then you see that it's suddenly kind of an ironic comment on these rulers who are no longer able to keep things safe. Or if you want to emphasize the word gentile, which I translated as courteous in the medieval sense of courtesy, but you could also translate as noble, the noble army, then what you're going to see here is an emphasis on acting nobly in a chivalric context, an increasing move toward courtesy, which is the prime chivalric value. Courtesy as in knowing your betters, bending before your betters, and asking those below you to bend to you. This will become important as we hit the disgusting misogyny that lies right ahead of us. It depends on which of these two words you emphasize, noble or army or encampment or military brigade. You'll see what I do in the episodes ahead. The gazing upward, all expectant and humble, and down come the angels. I saw exiting from above and coming down to us two angels with two flaming swords, the blades broken short and missing their tips. These two angels with their swords that are broken off, so they don't have the end of the swords, are most likely a reference to the angels that are stationed in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are kicked out. I want to talk to you about this in just a minute. One of the things I find so interesting is nobody advanced that interpretation until 1791. It's crazy. This poem existed for a very long time before anybody thought about the angels, the cherubim, with the flaming swords warding Adam and Eve off from the Garden of Eden. But I think it's obvious, now that someone in 1791 said it, it's obvious that that is indeed what's going on here. God places cherubim, and the word is a plural in the Hebrew, and it doesn't necessarily indicate two, so it's more than one. We see two here, maybe two, at the Garden of Eden. It's just plural in the Hebrew. Places these cherubim at the Garden of Eden at Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. There, and I just want to really highlight that, those angels are exclusionary. They are excluding Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, keeping them out and keeping humanity by, uh, what, generational truth, keeping humanity from returning to the Garden of Eden. These angels, it's clear, are protective. They're enclosing the negligent rulers inside their bounds, and they're protecting them from the snake who comes. That's really important. That shows you we've moved out of an infernal landscape, out of the old world way of seeing Eden as the place you can't get back to, and to this place where these 
Edenic angels come down with their flaming swords to protect these negligent rulers in this valley. They don't need the tips of their swords anymore because they've been broken. And just to pull out the Christian allegory, they've been broken because of Christ's death and resurrection. That's what Dante would see. Christ's sacrifice has made the angels, what, have no need for completed swords anymore. For Dante, redemption, as we will see in Purgatorio, is about returning to Eden. This reversal before the gates of Purgatory itself makes total sense in Dante's um, symbology, mythology, theology in his metaphoric space. We're going to see these Edenic angels now come down with broken swords and be protective, not excluding. If I had to push this, and this is what I'd like to push for just a second, Dante's been given these myths. Sorry, if you believe they're the truth, great. Um, I don't mean to step on your toes. But Dante's been given these not about this, stories about the Garden of Eden, about the angels guarding it from Adam and Eve, about Adam and Eve, the fall, paradise, well, they stop. Dante's been given these stories as a Christian of his day. And one of the things that's amazing about Dante is that he takes the stories he's been given and he plays with them. There's no precedence for this, for angels appearing from the Garden of Eden into purgatory with their flaming swords. There's no precedence anywhere for this in theology. Dante is playing with the stories he's been given. And here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. Play with the stories you've been given. You've been given a lot of stories in your life. I encourage you to think about playing with them, encourage you to blow meaning up out of them, to expand them, to alter them slightly. Keep their initial meaning intact if you want, but play with them in your own life. Build the stories so that it fits the story you want to tell about how you became you. This is what we can take away from Dante just on a personal level, playing with the stories you've been given. So the angels are in robes that are as green as newborn leaves, fluttered out and bag as their green feathers beat over them. There is a lot of commentary about the green. Natural symbolism, spring, rebirth, it's all great. And that all does tie us back, as I mentioned at the front, to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But there's another way we tie back to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and mm, this is what I want to push. Green is the liturgical color of common time, of ordinary time. Let me explain this. In the 12th century, Pope Innocent III establishes the liturgical colors, blue for Advent. These are the vestments and the adornments of the church, purple for Lent, white for Easter, red for Pentecost. These are the various colors that the priests wear during the services. Once you pass out of Pentecost, the founding of the church, you pass into what's called ordinary or common time. In other words, you've passed out of liturgical time and into a time of the year in which the vestments and the decorations of the church are green. And this is symbolic of common time, the time we all live, not sacred time, the way the liturgy creates the sphere of sacred time, but common time. And in fact, what did I tell you last time? The bells for Compline have rung and we have passed out of the liturgical time for the day and into the non-liturgical hours of the night. That's what I think is happening here. This is common time. This is not referenced to the 
birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the founding of the church. This is a moment in which we are caught in common, ordinary human time with these failed rulers. And the angels come down in green to emphasize the common ordinariness, the non-liturgical nature of what's going on in this valley. This is part of it. These guys neglected their liturgical duties. And the angels who show up are angels of common time. They're angels of non-liturgical time to protect them. And also to say that you are protected by the angels, whether you're in liturgical time or common time. But these guys are particularly advocates and members of common time because they neglected their liturgical duties. That's why these angels are here. And I find that the most compelling reason, because we moved from Compline, the last liturgical hour of the day, into the common hours of the night. And here we have another reference to a type of common time, the common time liturgical colors worn by priests and that adorn the churches. I don't want to push this too far, but you know what? I think that's what Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is about. It's the eruption of common secular time into the faux religious time that Arthur's court fosters. But that is beyond our abilities to talk about in this podcast. So let's move on with Dante. These angels come down and they position themselves on either kind of side of the valley, one kind of right above Dante, Virgil, and Sordello, and one on the opposite side of this dale or valley. And they're now enclosing the people. We get this idea of protection. And here comes the irony about the eyes. I could clearly make out their blonde heads. So these guys may have green feathers and green robes, but they're blonde. (laughs) Don't worry, it's always going to be westernized. They're blonde, but, and here's the irony, my eyes otherwise lost themselves in their faces as any faculty is confounded by too much. It's a gorgeous line in the Florentine, come virtu catropo si confonda, as as any power is confounds itself with too much, with It's really a beautiful and poetic line. So remember earlier Dante said, I've kind of given up on hearing and I'm just going to worry about my eyes. (laughs) Then here's a moment where his eyes fail him. He can't look at the angels' faces because, of course, their faces are too bright. Their faces are too glorious. Just like that angel that came in the boat bringing the souls early on in Canto 2. Same thing. Can't really see him. Can't make it out. My eyes aren't used to it. Believe it or not. The course of the poem is that the pilgrim's eyes will become able to look right in the face of angels. But that's far ahead of us for now. Let's just see that there's a little bit of wink, wink, nudge, nudge in this passage about relying on your eyes and then they don't do you any good. Because in the end, what the passage is about is the need for divine aid. I'd like to take a break to let you know how you can support the podcast Walking with Dante. You can give it a rating or even write a review on most of the podcast platforms. Doing so helps this podcast stay present in the streaming services. If you'd like to do more, please consider donating to this work. I've chosen not to seek sponsors, have in fact 
turn down some sponsors. But paying for a hosting site, securing the streaming feed, buying the rights to the music and the sound effects, keeping the web domains, it all costs. To help, there's a PayPal link. You can find it in the podcast player. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. And you can find it in the podcast notes for each episode, perhaps a dollar, a pound, or a euro per episode, or even 50 cents or half a quid. I'm happy to continue on my own with this passion project. Consider it a tip for your Dante-obsessed street busker. Now back to this episode. Sordello explains it. These two come from Mary's bosom. And I want to talk about this reference to Mary. We've already had them singing Salve Regina, and now we have Mary here. Remember that the veneration of Mary is becoming doctrine in Dante's day. It has become doctrine, but it is still developing its doctrinal, what do I want to say, influences and addenda. And these angels come from Mary's bosom, and as Sordello says, they keep watch over the valley because of the serpent that will soon enough make its way here. So apparently Apparently, this is a nightly occurrence. Nobody seems much dumbfounded by this. The pilgrim can't look at the angels and seems knocked off his feet. But everybody else is like, this this is what happens around here. (laughs) Angels come down from Mary's bosom at night and guard this place. This is important to just note here because it's going to play out ahead of us. But there is a Mary Eve play in this canto. To use the crass words, there's a virgin whore play ahead of us. It's part of the really disgusting misogyny ahead. And that we now have Mary is setting us up for Eve and these angels perhaps from the Garden of Eden. And we're going to meet a figure like Eve uh, in the disgusting misogyny part that has fallen as Eve has. You should just know that medievals love to play with this because Ave, Ave Maria, Ave is, uh, you know, a medieval play on the name Eva, Eve, E-V-A, A-V-E. It's going to set up in this canto. We're going to have a lot of Mary Eve talk, virgin whore talk. But in the meantime, before that all plays out before our eyes, Dante freezes. And that seems really important. Tordello says, you know, hey, there's a serpent coming and these angels protect us from the serpent. Wow, we're going to have to talk about that endlessly. Serpent, we're clearly back to the Garden of Eden, right? In the end, purgatory is the search for Eden. It's the search for innocence. So that here, before we hit the real gate of purgatory in Canto 9, it shouldn't surprise us that the references to Eden start becoming thick and fast around us. All right, so the serpent's going to come. And Dante whips around, doesn't know where it's going to come from. Is it behind me? Is it beside me? Where does this thing come from? And he draws close to those trusted shoulders. We assume that's Virgil. Virgil has already been described this way previously in comedy. I suppose you could make the case that he draws closer to Sordello, since Sordello is the one who talks before this moment and after this moment. But that doesn't seem to ring true with comedy as a whole. I think the trusted shoulders are Virgil's, but what I want to talk about is the frozen in fear, gelato. Dante's only been frozen, (laughs) turned into gelato, once before in comedy, and that's in Inferno 34, line 22, when he gets a look at Satan. He chills down to the bone, as he does here. This seems like it's a very important callback. This scene is the last gasp of hell. 
and that we're called back to the vision of Satan, and the response to that vision is important. The snake here is not an allegory. It's a physical presence in the poem. It is allegorical in its meaning, as we will talk about endlessly ahead, but it is a physical presence just as Satan was. But in that case with Satan, there was some fear on the pilgrim's part, you know, frozen, because you're seeing the emperor of evil frozen in the ice sheet of Cocytus. Here, this freezing is really of no merit. This is what Dante has to learn, that when the angels are here, you don't need to freeze in fear. Don't worry, dude. You already got the angels with the flame and sword, so the snake shows up. What's the snake going to do? The angels aren't going to let the snake do anything. Some people might say, well, listen, the snake's not going to do anything to the redeemed souls, but Dante's still in his body. And he's not officially supposed to be here, but we know that this voyage is divinely sanctioned. We've known this since Inferno 2. Dante doesn't need to worry. Hey, relax. You have got Virgil, you've got angels, you got all you need to do to get yourself across the known universe. And then Sordello ends it by almost taking the air out of it. Sordello says, let's go down among the great shades and chat with them. They'll be really pleased to see you. I mean, this is so strange. <laughs> so much drama, green angels and feathers and fluttering robes and coming down from the heavens, the wheeling heavens above and the threat of a snake. And oh, they're so beautiful. I can't even look at them. And, you know, all of this happening and it's so dramatic. And then Sordello's like, huh, hey, well, you know, let's go down and talk to some people. They're going to really like to talk to you. It's so weird. It's so deflating to the drama of the passage. Why? I'm going to tell you something. It involves what's ahead of us. We're about to be treated to a bit of street theater. We're about to be witnesses to a nightly event. It happens all the time. There are angels aren't going to let snakes hurt anybody here. Come on, give me a break. A snake is going to come, but what's it going to do? Beat the angels? Don't think so. So it's a piece of mummery. It's not all that threatening in the end. And I think that this is part of the deflating. We might feel it ramping up the way Inferno ramps up at certain moments and ramps up with the thieves and ramps up with Medusa and ramps up with Phlegius. But honestly, rest assured, rest assured that nothing can happen to you now. You're in safety. When you've come through the bad parts, whatever the bad parts are, cancer, divorce, breakup, financial distress, whatever your bad parts are, I don't know. Uh, let me say my, the really bad part of my life was coming out. Uh, you can read about this in my memoir if you'd like, bookmarked. After that, now the challenge, having been through the nightmare that was my coming out, the challenge is to relax into this part of my life, and I can barely do it. I can only do it when I really think about it, because honestly, the terror from the past is still sitting there. That's this. Be calm. You're through Inferno. As Sordello says, hey, let's go chat with these guys. They would like to see you. <laughs> that stands in direct contrast to all the fear I was ginning up inside myself, based legitimately on on the fear I faced in the past. 
Here comes the passage one more time. Canto 8, lines 19 through 45. Right here, reader, wet your eyes to the truth because the scrim is so transparent that it's easy to pass inside it. I saw this courteous army all gaze upward in silence. They were expectant, but pale and humble too. And I saw exiting from above and coming down to his two angels with two flaming swords, the blades broken short and missing their tips. These angels were in robes that were as green as newborn leaves, which fluttered out and back as their green feathers beat over them. One of them came down to a spot a little above us, and the other came down onto the opposite embankment so that the people were enclosed in the middle of them. I could clearly make out their blonde heads, but my eyes otherwise lost themselves in their faces as any faculty is confounded by too much. The two of them came from Mary's bosom, Sordela said, they keep watch over the valley because of the serpent that will soon enough make its way here. Just then I, who didn't know which path it might take, whipped around and drew even closer, all frozen in fear to those trusted shoulders. Sordela went on, let's go down now among the great shades and chat with them. They'll be really pleased to see you. And they will be. The welcome mat is about to come out for Dante the Pilgrim and Virgil and Sordello as they descend into the valley of these kings who didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do or dodged their ecclesiastical responsibilities while taking care of their political matters. To get there into the next passages and Dante's welcome mat, you gotta subscribe to this podcast and rate. I'm sitting here thinking, oh yeah, to get to the misogyny ahead, right? Anyway, <laughs> subscribe to this podcast, rate it. If you could write a review, that would be great. Thanks for your support and your ongoing support of our journey. I am just thrilled to be doing this with you, and I hope you're thrilled with it too. It knocks me out. I love it. It's hard. It's difficult. At times, it's tedious, but it always pays off in the end because Dante is Dante, and Dante knows how to make it pay off. And I'm Mark Scarborough. I hope I know how to make it pay off, too. I'll see you on the walk ahead. Walk ahead.